0: Hello, and welcome to Midweek in the Word podcast, brought to you by Faith Bible in Lincoln, Nebraska. Every week, we strive to become better readers, hearers, and doers of God's Word. Look for us every Wednesday where you stream your podcasts. Here's our host, Faith Bible's Adult Ministries Pastor, Brad Myers.
1: Well, hello again, listeners, and welcome back to another episode on Midweek in the Word. Uh, Today, I'm really excited for the episode we're going to be covering for the book we've got. We'll be continuing our new series entitled Bearing Witness, talking about how all the Old Testament bore witness and spoke of Christ Mm -hmm. coming, and we're going to be continuing it with what may be one of the most well-known and beloved stories in the entire Old Testament. It makes it into every children's Bible, the story (laughs) in the book of Esther. I'm looking forward to reviewing this familiar story with you here on the podcast and hopefully shedding some additional light on the story as well. But before we get into the actual discussion, I want to take a moment, I want to introduce our guest on the podcast this week. Back again, uh, he was on the podcast last year in June, Dustin Rogers, the lead pastor at Heritage Bible Church, one of our sister churches here in Lincoln. Welcome to the podcast, Dustin.
2: Thank you. So good to be back.
1: We're thrilled to have you back. Listeners, if you were listening for over a year, you know that Dustin was on the podcast in June of 2021. He talked a little bit about the doctrine of creation, and he gave a bit of his introduction uh, on the podcast. If you missed his introduction, his story, his one-minute testimony, uh, that sort of idea. Go back and check out that episode, June 2nd of 2021. You can hear a little bit about his story. I'm not going to go back through that here on the podcast because I want to make sure we leave enough time for our topic of discussion. But before we get into that, um, I just want to ask you, Dustin... Um, we covered these these questions of by way of introduction last time you were here, but uh, it's been a while since we had you on the podcast. Right. Our listeners may not be aware of what all is going on at, or at Heritage Bible Church. Any updates, any encouragements, things from across town, the north side yep. of O Street, oh, yeah. if you will, for Promised our listeners? Land.
2: The Promised Land is doing well. Uh, we are loving life on the north side. Uh, very thankful for what God is doing there. Uh, still uh, so grateful to be one of the pastors there, uh, serve with a great team of elders and a great staff. Um, Something that is new uh, Mm. uh, with regard to uh, since the last time I was on this podcast is that uh, Pastor Matt McGrew is on staff with us now, he joined our team uh, in August of last year, and we've been so blessed by him and his family, and uh, so it's really kind of rounded out our team in a beautiful way, and we feel like God is uh, doing a great work there, so very thankful.
1: Excellent uh, well it's it's always a pleasure to in, invite others from other churches around and <laughs> onto the podcast uh, listeners if, if you are new to the podcast if you don't know who Dustin is but you were able to make it to the Bible conference he was one of the pastors that preached at the Bible conference here on John 17 a few weeks ago uh, maybe that'll put a name with a face uh, yeah. as you listen here on the podcast um, but I don't want to spend too much time on this Dustin because I want to yeah, make sure I'll that s- we give you enough time to yeah, effectively man. cover uh, what you've told me is one of your favorite books the book of Esther. Um, like I said, it's it's probably a familiar story for most of our listeners. It's a familiar book, um, but I want to proceed as if people are kind of totally new to it, as if they're reading Sweet. it for the first time in their own Bibles. So let's let's set the stage here just a bit. What is the occasion, what is the situation of the book of Esther?
2: Yeah, so the uh, story of Esther uh, happens about 100 years after the Babylonian captivity and the, the sort of culmination of that with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., so our story takes place about 482 BC, between 482 and 478, or so. So about a hundred years after Jerusalem is sacked, and uh, so um, the the context of Israel at that time is that Cyrus the Persian has allowed them to come home, mm. um, and so about fifty thousand Jews come back from captivity to the Jerusalem area, underneath the leadership of Zerubbabel. Mm. And they begin to rebuild the temple and whatnot. But uh, many of the Jews are still dispersed. Um, and so some of those Jews are actually in the city of Susa, which is where the story of Esther takes place. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, roughly 482 BC, um, the Jews have been allowed to come home, but they're still a captive nation. They are under the control of the Persian Empire at this time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, listeners, you recall, as we covered over the last few weeks, the books of Kings and Chronicles where we saw the divided nation and then the northern tribes fall, the southern tribes fall, the 70-year captivity. We covered some of this, so you're a little bit familiar with where we're at in the story as the 100 years post that reality. Um, And and for those,
2: by the way, and for those uh, that are history buffs, they might be interested to note that this is the historical period in which the Greek empire Mm -hmm. is on the rise. And so Alexander the Great, uh, obviously everyone knows that name, uh, is uh, coming to power about this time. Uh, And so if you look at Esther chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, um, Xerxes throws this big party, and most believe that this is ahead of his campaign to crush this rising Greek resistance led by ah. King Leonidas of Sparta.
1: Yes, and yes. so if you know
2: the, the story of the Battle of the 300, yeah. this is all happening around this time. And so uh, one of the um, interesting notes about Esther 1 is that it's very likely that this party that he throws for a period of six months, which is kind of ridiculous... <laughs> It seems a bit. It six seems a month bit much party, for me. Yeah. yeah. Six month party. Basically, he's trying to boost morale and also gain fame for himself, mm-hmm. Xerxes, ahead of this attempt to crush Leonidas, to crush Alexander the Great in this rising Greek resistance. So, uh, yeah, he's trying to boost morale and, and get the party started, as it were.
1: Yeah, always fun to see how biblical history laces itself in historically with what's actually what we know of. Extra biblical history mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. well in the time period. I'm sure there's some history buffs out there that are geeking out just a bit of <laughs> this this reality yeah, of how this all cool. plays together yeah. as well. Okay, so then as we look at this book and we realize we've got we've got these these Israelites that are in a foreign nation that are in captivity that are um, some have returned but not all have returned back right. to the promised land. Right. Um, then we get this story. We get this story. Obviously, we titered Esther. We realize Esther's going to be at the center of this story. But mm-hmm. how is the book organized? How should we read this book as we approach it?
2: Well, there's a lot that I could say about how it's organized. But I, I would just start by saying, with regard to genre, it's historical narrative. Mm. And uh, it should be interpreted as such. It should be read as a story, uh, for it is indeed a story. So it's, it's very different than, say, an epistle. So it's not propositional in the sense that there are straightforward statements or commands that we are to uh, just hear and apply. Uh, It needs to be read as a story. And so uh, you see in the story of Esther, the author's use of uh, devices like character development and Mm. the story arc, Mm. i.e. setting, rising action, crisis, climax, resolution, and also narrative devices like um, the theme of coincidence You will find that a lot in the story of Esther. Uh, What seems like coincidence uh, over time, you realize, wait, something else is going on here. It's not just a bunch of happy accidents. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: Um, uh, So to read it like a story, you are going to be pressing into those details of Mm. characters and how the story is uh, developed over time. I think you also need to grasp two overarching themes in the Bible Outside of this. Um, For example, number one, I would say you need to understand the sovereign glory of God Mm. as the primary theme of the entire Bible, that God is chiefly about his own glory, and his glory is so clearly evidenced in the book of Esther. Moreover, you need to understand a bit about the redemptive plan of God, which is really the arc of the entire Bible to save all nations through this one nation— Called Israel. Mm. And uh, I would just add, I think it's one of the best stories ever written. Mm. Uh, It's a true story, uh, but it's told in such a beautiful way. So if you pay attention to the narrative and read it as a story um, and see the characters develop, see the arc develop, and understand it in context of the themes of the Bible, the glory and greatness of God, and the redemptive plan of God. Man, this, this mm. book just comes alive, mm. and it's so powerful. It's called Esther, but it's ultimately not about <laughs> Esther.
0: Yep.
2: It's about God, His glory, and redemption, and it relates to us. Yeah. And we'll get into that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, you'll recall, if, if you're a long-term listener and you remember a couple of years ago when we talked about the genre of narrative on the podcast, you remember some of these themes are coming back up, how do we read these? Just a few weeks ago, we talked about the book of Ruth, and it was very much the same way. Nice. Like, yes. It's subtle, same. and it just tells the story, and it allows mm-hmm. the story to convey the message rather than all these little editorial notes like, this is the way you should read right. this part of the story. And right. in that way, it really – I love the way narrative doesn't pull punches. It just allows the story to drop bombs mm-hmm. in a way that editorial mm-hmm. and letters can't. Right, and I, and I, I love this, I love this style, though maybe stories are a little less familiar than epistles to mm-hmm. us as New Testament Western believers in that respect. Okay, so you've got this story that t- that's talking about Esther and these people that are Israelites in this foreign land, um, in light of the way the story is told, in light of what you've told us so far, what is that primary message the book is trying to communicate?
2: Well, let me just first of all say that it's not about the bravery of Esther yeah. And it's not about the savvy of Mordecai. (laughs) Um, I think it's easy for people who have just a cursory knowledge of the book to Mm -hmm. think that, man, this is about uh, this beautiful girl and her brave uh, actions, or it's Mm -hmm. about this uh, wise, savvy uncle figure named Mordecai. In reality, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble and, unless it needs to be bu- uh, bursted, but <laughs>
1: but just a little bit. We're gonna uh, I, go I there. Will there say,
2: I, I will say that Esther and Mordecai are actually quite compromised characters. Mm. Uh, they are not these pristine, morally righteous, pure you know individuals that we may have thought them to be yeah. uh, from children's books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, rather, they're pretty morally compromised mm. um, in a lot of different ways. And so I would say the primary message, first of all, is not that uh, Esther is brave, and so be like Esther, or, you know, Mordecai is wise, so be like Mordecai. It's not that at all. Really, the primary message of the book is about the the glory and greatness and trustworthiness of God. Mm -hmm. I would put it this way as a a turn of phrase, you can trust the sovereign care of the unseen king. Mm -hmm. One of the fascinating things about the book of Esther is that the name of God is never used. The name of, of God is never mentioned. In fact, there is never anything really attributed to God or anything divine in the entire book, which is unusual. I mean, we're talking about the Bible
1: mm-hmm. yeah. and
2: a lot of words in the Bible, and God isn't even mentioned. But I think that's intentional. Yeah. I think that's one of the devices that the author uses, in fact, to really help underscore that God is in every paragraph, yeah. Yeah. and his greatness is on display in every single paragraph.
1: Yeah. And I, one of the things that strikes me that I think we have a tendency to forget is that the rest of the Old Testament is to be read in light of the Pentateuch.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
1: the Pentateuch, those first five books that established nice. who God is mm-hmm. become the framework and the lens by which we read every other story. So at times people say, well, why doesn't this narrative take the time to say that action was wrong? Well, the Pentateuch already told us that that action was wrong. Hey, well said. Like that we need to understand that. And so it just lays out the story and assumes that we understand the Pentateuch and what well these said. people were supposed to be doing and how they were supposed to be ha- behaving. Okay, well, since we've stirred up a bit of a hornet's nest already here, and you've talked about the morally compromised nature of Mordecai and Esther, go into a little bit about that. Explain why you see that in the book of Esther.
2: Uh, you know, to understand that, you would have to dig into chapter two. Uh, but in chapter two, what we find is that uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus um, is on a mission to find a new queen. Mm. And as a part of that, he organizes this contest, which we've always sort of broad brushed as a beauty contest, yeah. but it's much more than a beauty contest. And I want to be, you know, ultimately discreet here, but yep. it is basically a sex contest. Yeah. And so one has to ask the question if you're reading between lines here. One has to ask the question first of all, why is Esther in the pageant? Mm. Secondly, why is Mordecai allowing it? Mm. So we know that Mordecai is kind of a father figure in her life, and he's uh, you know taking care of Esther. How in the world does he allow her to participate in this? Mm. I think another question you would have to ask about the whole story is, why are Mordecai and Esther still in Susa? <laughs> yeah. Why yeah. haven't they gone back to Jerusalem?
1: Yeah, uh,
2: Most uh, fair historical commentators would suggest that they're pretty secular. They're, they're not really, you know, these faithful, God-fearing Jews. It's not that they don't worship Yahweh. I'm yeah. not suggesting that. But I would say that um, they've had the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to worship God in his temple, but they've chosen not to. For right. whatever reason, right. they've chosen to remain in Susa. Certainly God uses it, Yeah. but we also understand that they're probably pretty compromised, yeah. if we're honest. Another thing that's interesting about these two characters is their names. Hmm. Mordecai, as a name, is after the Persian god or deity Marduk,
0: hmm.
2: Um. Queen Esther's, we, we know her actual name, her Jewish name is Hadassah, but she goes by Esther, um, which is after the, the goddess Ishtar, yeah, yeah. which is very interesting. It's like, why are these people adopting these names like Mordecai and Esther? Yeah. Furthermore, and this is the last thing I'll say, with regard to this whole um, uh, contest that Esther is a part of, the one piece of advice that Mordecai gives her as his As her father figure who 's allowing her to participate <laughs> in this really debauched thing, yeah. the one piece of advice he gives her is don 't tell anyone that you 're a jew yeah that 's the one thing he says, and so you 're going, wow like there 's no way that they 're living under the mosaic law they 're yeah. not living kosher lives they 're not being you know separate stand out morally mm-hmm. righteous people in this moment in fact they 're pretty compromised they 're mm-hmm. kind of going along to get along. They're in Susa. They're probably pretty secular, uh, and so they're not really the heroes that we yeah. perhaps want to make them out to be. Yeah, at least not yet.
1: Yeah. Well, and I can't help but think of this story and how the narrative stands opposed to the Book of Daniel. Yes, you know, the difference in names with you know Daniel and mm-hmm. and then the transition of his friends' names. They give them new names, but they're still using their Hebrew names. You know, and and then we see these examples. Of, I mean. God's name is constant through the book of Daniel. They're standing up in opposition to Nebuchadnezzar is constant in the Mm -hmm. book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. As opposed to Esther, where it seems like they're kind of part of the get-along gang, where they're like, you know, they've taken, you know, Jeremiah 29, you know, be a part of the (laughs) culture a little too far. They've gone, okay, we're just going to be of this people rather than just being among them and seeking the welfare of the nation where we've been brought.
2: That's really insightful, Brad. Uh, I think you're exactly right. I thought about that a lot as I went through the book of Esther. Mm. They are very much polar opposites to Daniel, mm. Esther, and Mordecai. Uh, they're on the other end of the spectrum. And uh, But it, I think, honestly, we can also relate to that a little bit. Oh, they're yeah. pro- we're probably more like them than we are like Daniel, <laughs> if, <laughs> if we're honest. And, yeah. uh, and ultimately, I think there should be some conviction there that... Yeah. Um, You know, we should ask the question, are we too secular? Are we too like the world? Um, I certainly believe that, having studied this this text, that Mordecai and Esther really were. And yet it's also encouraging that God uses them in spite of that.
1: Mm. It is really a blessing. I, I want to dig into the application here a bit more, but before we get to that, I also want to make sure we, we can't read an Old Testament book like this. In spite of the lack of, of Yahweh being mentioned in the book of Esther, mm-hmm. we know that all these books point forward to the and work of Christ. Mm-hmm. So before we actually go to how we ought to live in light of what the story tells us, where do we see Christ testified to? What, where is the picture of the cross and Christ in the book of Esther?
2: Yeah, I would say that you can connect that in two primary ways. Uh, one is that you find a connection here between Israel and the Messiah. Mm. How that's developed in the story of Esther uh, really forces us to dive into the story a bit more. In Esther chapter three, you find that this uh, character begins to be de- be developed, whose name is Haman. Mm. Haman is presented as the enemy of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm in some ways, he's the embodiment of Satan. Mm. He is trying to uh, thwart the plan of God. He's trying to destroy the people of God. For whatever reason, he has Israel in his crosshairs. Yeah. And so he organizes this uh, plan of attack to completely annihilate the people of Israel mm. throughout the entire Persian Empire, which is where all of the Jewish people live. I mean, by the end of chapter 3, the people of Israel as a people group and as a nation, they are on the brink of total mm. annihilation. Yeah. Which yeah. which is big for <laughs> as you look at the whole Bible and the whole message of the Bible, the coming of the Messiah is contingent upon the survival of the people of Israel. Yep. Yep. And so, in a very real way, I can if I can speak from a human standpoint, obviously we trust in the sovereign God, but yeah. from a human standpoint. You don't get Jesus without Esther. Yeah. Yeah. It's just true. Yeah. You don't get Jesus without Esther. And so there's a real tangible connection there. I well, think and if,
1: you, if I may here, before you yeah, move on go. to the other one too, I, I, listeners, this is precisely the point that, that Dustin was making earlier about the, the narrative elements, right? Mm-hmm. The climax of the story, climaxes at this, this moment of tension. As we think of our standard stories, our mm-hmm. movies that we watch, there's this high point of tension and it is... Are the people of Israel all going to be wiped out? Yeah. Which really begs the question of every book that came before it are all these promises of God that he said, I will send one, Mm -hmm. you know, to Genesis 3, and then, you know, to Abraham in Genesis, and then David, and all these other figures that we've already talked about. If the Israelites are wiped out here, all of those promises of God go away. So this climax speaks to the point of the book, because this is where the action climaxes. Right. That's a narrative element. That's a storytelling thing that we need to know.
2: Yeah, it's beautiful. Anyway, I'll I'll,
1: I'll let you move on to your second point. I think that's really good.
2: You're good. And and with all of these, we will uh, dive into the story uh, even more. But uh, I I would say also you see the connection to Jesus through the images of dramatic reversal. Hmm. So Haman attempts to destroy Israel, but ultimately ends, ends up on the pole that he builds for Mordecai. Whereas in in Christ, in the New Testament, Satan attempts to destroy Christ by putting him on the pole, but in reality, Jesus volunteers to be there as the final sacrifice, the final Passover, Hmm. uh, paying the price for all of our sins, and in so doing, upends the curse. So Hmm. if you can think about it in terms of like Narnia, it's the deep magic, right? It's that moment where Aslan volunteers to be on the stone table Hmm. because he knows a deeper magic than does the white witch, <laughs> right? And same is true with Christ. Uh, so Lewis was, C.S. Lewis was brilliant in that imagery, for Jesus actually volunteers to go to the cross, yeah. and in so doing knows a deeper magic mm-hmm. right, than Satan and upends the curse. And when he rose again, he reversed the curse, reverses the whole culmination of the story, and Satan is ultimately crushed. Mm-hmm. And you can see that in ways through the story of Esther. and how Haman's attempt to annihilate the Jews ends with him on the pole instead.
1: Mm. That's...
2: Pretty cool.
1: (laughs) There's some imagery there that's... Yeah. And and it's consistent throughout the Old Testament with so many of the stories we've seen, where in in some ways in the book of Esther, Haman takes almost like the the Pharaoh role that's been built throughout the Old Testament. You know, you get Pharaoh, think of the Exodus, when we were talking about that in Exodus, you know, right? You've got him saying, I'm going to wipe out the Israelites by killing their sons, right? Mm -hmm. And you get this inversion in this story where this... Anti God figure, this almost stand in for Satan figure who's going to wipe out the people of God. And the inversion in the whole story is the sons of Egypt are killed rather than the sons of Israel. Right. And the Israelites are led out into, you know, and that's very similar to the way the story plays out here, where there's this inversion meant to say, okay, what is God doing? You know, I I, I love that you note that dramatic reversal. That's a good
2: term. Yeah. And just to carry on with what you just painted there, it happens again. When they're butted up against the Red Sea, and yeah, yes. the Egyptian soldiers are coming after them, yes. and they start to complain immediately, like, well, What's going on, God? Yes. Like, why did you lead us out here to be killed? And so then he parts the Red Sea, they go through on dry ground, and then yep. the Egyptians follow them into the sea and are swallowed up in it. Yep. So they are spared again, and the Egyptians are yeah. crushed. It's a narrative that is repeated
1: mm-hmm.
2: in stories throughout the Old Testament, and then it ultimately climaxes in Jesus. And Satan, yeah. that fulfills Genesis 3.15. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah, the serpent would ultimately be crushed, yeah. his head.
1: <laughs> God uses what Satan believes to be his very strength and his victory mm. uh, to ultimately be his demise. <laughs> it's a constant picture. Yeah, and I love the, the s- picture we see.
2: In the story of Esther, it looks for all the world, if you're reading it fairly and not already knowing the outcome <laughs> too much, you know? Which if we do a little bit. We but do, yeah, like... we do. <laughs> if you're reading it fairly it looks for all the world like they're going to be annihilated. I mean, it's like there's no chance, right? They're not going to survive.
1: Yeah. So good. Okay, so this this trajectory of the Messiah coming through Israel, which has been hit so many times in the Old Testament up to this book in Easter, or Esther, excuse me, and then also this dramatic reversal. Okay, Mm -hmm. now we said we were going to get to it. We got to move on. We recognize that this is pointing us forward to Christ, but we also know that this book is given for our good. For our edification, mm-hmm. what what does God want us to understand, to believe, to do, to desire mm-hmm. as a result of reading the book of Esther?
2: Yeah, I, I just really want to encourage uh, the people, the listeners with this. I want you to understand from the book of Esther that the, the message ultimately, I think, for us is that God is in total control. Mm-hmm. He's the real king, and this is his show. The whole uh, development of the world, the development of history it's all his show. And so I just want to encourage the people of God, you can trust in him. Um, in a very real way, in the story of Esther, God is hidden and remains hidden. And yet, in the hiddenness, you see his hand, perhaps all the more. Because as coincidence after coincidence after coincidence unfold you realize wait a second it's not an accident <laughs> god is working behind the the scenes he's he's the king of the shadows if you will yeah. and he's working mm. so it's it's really interesting how the story opens up with this big show about Xerxes in fact i just want to read and emphasize a couple of words in esther chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 if you remember back ahead of that campaign to crush the greeks and the spartans etc You find that Xerxes throws this big party, but notice the emphasis that the author places on his attempt for his own glory.
1: Mm.
2: It says, The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. (laughs) And it continues there. But the point is that Xerxes is all about him. He thinks that this whole thing is his show. I mean, the Persians are on top, it's their empire, and he's number one. But in reality, as the story of Esther unfolds, you find that flipped. It's not about Xerxes. (laughs) He's not in total control. God is on his throne, and he doesn't even need to be named in order to be seen as totally sovereign and in control. And so I would just encourage the people of God with... This reality that even though God may seem hidden at times mm-hmm. in our world or may seem hidden in your life, understand that He is not unaware. Mm-hmm. He is always aware of His people, and He's always working in the shadows for His glory and our good. And I just think that's so huge, especially in the climate that we live in right now. Yeah, It's easy to feel forgotten, I think. Yeah. If you watch the news, like, where is God? Or if you are facing perhaps like unfulfilled expectations in your life or facing difficult trials and and difficult moments in your life, it's easy to feel totally forgotten of God. Like, where is God in my life? Hmm. And I would just encourage you, like through the book of Esther, understand He knows, He's aware, and He's present. He's Hmm. there. Even though you might not see Him, He's there. Continue to trust, continue to lean in, uh, for He is worthy of your trust. It's beautiful.
1: It really is. And it's an encouragement, hopefully it is to you listeners, whatever you might be facing today, that reminder that God is in total control, even when he appears, appears would be the emphasis mm-hmm. there, hidden uh, from our own sight, even okay, in Brad, places where we don't think we see him.
2: Okay, Brad, can I just prove that in yeah, one yeah, moment? Please in one do. particular moment in the book of Esther, you find a whole bunch of <sighs> coincidences that just stack on each other, and it's so, it's so crazy... Uh, it's clear. If I can say it that way, it's it's so unusual, it's clear. So I'm just going to say a bunch of statements, but you'll find these uh, towards the middle to end of the book of Esther. And uh, and I'll just rattle off several statements here, but they all begin with, it just so happens. So it just so (laughs) happens that as Esther approaches uh, Xerxes that he grants her access. He doesn't kill her, right? She doesn't have permission just to approach him on her own, right? So it's not, it's not ultimately this big love story <laughs> like we want to think of it. I mean, <laughs> she hasn't even seen the king in some time, and she doesn't even know that she will survive going mm-hmm. to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. But she is granted life and an audience by the king when she approaches uninvited. And it just so happens that in that moment, she arranges two banquets instead of one, And that between the first and second banquets, Haman determines to have Mordecai killed and builds gallows for it. And it just so happens that on that night, between the two banquets, Xerxes can't sleep. And it just so happens that he chooses a reading of Chronicles as his sleep aid. And it just so happens that they happen to read (laughs) about Mordecai's heroism, And decide to honor him on the very morning he was to be executed. And it just so happens that Haman shows up early that morning, hoping to kill Mordecai, getting permission to kill Mordecai, but then unwittingly helps prepare the plan to reward Mordecai. And it just so happens that when the king asks Esther for the third time, At the second banquet, to bring her request, she finally shares, and he passionately sides with her. I mean, just just think about all that happens in the space of 48 hours. (laughs) In 48 hours, the entire story turns. It all hinges because God is sovereign. Yeah, I mean... Are we supposed to, to just conclude that it was an accident that Xerxes couldn't sleep? It was an accident that there were two banquets instead of one? It was an accident that in between the, those <laughs> banquets, Haman planned to kill Mordecai and erected the pole for... It? I mean, it, yeah. it's unbelievable so much that it is believable. Yeah. Right? If I could say it that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, consider what Matthew Henry uh, wrote. He said, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is. Mm-hmm directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. The hiddenness of God, still accomplishing his purposes, only heightens the sense of God's power. Though God is never named, this book is one of the longest sustained meditations on the sovereignty of God and the providence of God that we have in the whole Bible. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen and amen. I mean, like, amen. Uh, I just want to encourage your listeners, you can trust in him. He yeah. is in control.
1: <laughs> what might just so happen in <laughs> our lives, right?
2: Amen. That's good. It's fascinating because, you know, like, I, I was intrigued in studying the, the book of Esther. I was intrigued by what secular commentators would have to say. Mm. I ended up uh, coming across a lecture by a Yale professor and this is what she said with regard to the hiddenness of God. Just think about the twist here and how, how big of a, of a difference this is with regard to application, mm-hmm. the application you and I are talking about. Here's what she says. The Jews of Persia are threatened with genocide. So we, we know that, right? That, that's fact. Uh, that's accepted amongst all commentators, that the Jews are facing complete annihilation, which again, we can understand from Satan's perspective is thwarting the plan of God Mm -hmm. to bring the Messiah through the people of Israel. But she says this, The Jews of Persia are threatened with genocide, and they are saved not by divine intervention, but entirely through their own efforts. Indeed, the book of Esther does not mention God once. So her conclusion as a secular commentator, I would say, Mm is that the hiddenness of God means that it's all on the people. Mm. It's all on Esther and Mordecai, and that through their bravery, Israel is saved. It was through their own efforts. And is this not interesting with regard to salvation? Mm. So many people want to believe that we are working for our own salvation. We are contributing to our own salvation that like god is not really there he's he's out there but we've got to make our way to him
1: yeah he's right? passive if you will right he's yeah. passive yeah
2: we don't believe that yeah. we believe in an active sovereign god who's in total control and because we do we can trust him mm-hmm. we can know that he's aware personally aware of our lives what a blessing that is
1: no doubt no doubt well, listeners, that is it. That is, I mean, I could say that there's so much more that we could go into so here in just more. a few chapters here in the book of Esther, but that is the driving point of the book of Esther. Hopefully, it's been an encouragement to you and illuminated Some of what we've talked about, again, remember as you're reading through Esther the next time that this is historical narrative and to Mm. look for some of those character things and some of the stuff that we've highlighted as far as arc and as far as climax and some of those things that you're familiar with, probably from your high school literature class or whatever, maybe it's a while to go back and think about that. But the point, the driving point that we see here is we see Christ's promise, this Messiah coming through the people of Israel. And as a result, God's hidden hand through this entire book, directing things with these dramatic reversals to make his will take place, even in a foreign nation like Persia, even with Mm. Esther and Mordecai who aren't necessarily seeking the will of the Lord Mm -hmm. in their own lives, we can still trust in God's sovereignty, even when he doesn't appear um, overtly or when we don't think he's there. Any, any final thoughts for our listeners on this, Dustin?
2: I don't think so. Uh, that was a great uh, summary there. Uh, just so encouraged uh, by uh, books like the Book of Esther and mm. to see the faithfulness of God, the care of God. Um, it's uh, such a refreshing thing and to understand that he's in control, especially in a society, like I said before, that uh, appears to have left God out, mm. completely left God uh, out. He's he's not left out. Mm. <laughs> he's on his throne. <laughs> and uh he knows he cares. Yeah. He can be trusted. Yeah.
1: Very good. Well, listeners, we pray that would be true and that reality would come home to your hearts in this current season, wherever you might be. And Dustin, thank you for taking the time to join us here this week on the podcast. You've got it. I've enjoyed our discussion. Listeners, hopefully you found it encouraging as well. Uh, just remember, Sunday is coming here real quickly. We'd love to see you at either a 9 o'clock or 10.30 services on Sunday. And thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Remember, if it's been helpful to you, you can always share it, rate it, or comment on it to help other people find it. And we hope you join us again next week as we move into Job on Midweek in the Word.
0: Thanks for taking time to join us for Midweek in the Word. To hear previous podcast episodes, be sure to follow, like, and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Faith Bible Church, please visit our website at www.faithbiblelincoln.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Faith Bible Lincoln, or tweet us at FBC Lincoln. And now we leave you with these encouraging words from Hebrews 12. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith.